Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about mailbag. We've got a mailbag episode, people. It's coming at you. <laughs> we asked for your questions, and we have answers. So um, we're just going to dig into that, and then we'll finish up with recently watched. So, Adam, uh, you got you want to start reading off some questions? We got some Q's and we have some A's. So the first question comes from Jack McDermott uh, asking, what are some of your favorite directorial debuts? Hmm. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm sure like if we, like we went back like further in time, like there would be better answers. Like, oh man, that, that director really came out the gate. Like I think who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is Mike Nichols directorial debut. And that's, I that's, believe that's true. I think that's a, that's a pretty good one to come out the gate on. Um, let's see. But I would say, like, in terms of, like, re- in recent memory, like, directorial debuts that were really promising. Um, well, for starters, just this uh, opening, you know, at a theater near you, Autumn DeWilde's new adaptation of Emma is very good. Uh, she comes out of uh, music videos and commercials. And uh, she really, I think, hit it out of the park from uh, in terms of the craftsmanship of the new Emma. So that was, you know, one to watch. Um, I also thought Olivia Wilde did a really strong job with Booksmart. I think there were some really strong directing choices in there. Um, I'm trying to think. Ben Zeitlin, obviously, with Beasts of the Southern Wild. I thought you were going to go with Billy Wilder to keep the wild going. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh yeah, for me, I mean, one that comes to mind pretty strikingly is Gone Baby Gone. Mm. Um, you know, that was a pretty big turning point in Ben Affleck's career, and I think that one really <clears throat> kind of had us all thinking about him in a very different way um, and was a very promising. Yeah, it's mostly recent stuff that's in my head. I mean, uh, stuff like The Witch with Robert Eggers, that's something that made me immediately say, like, all right. I'll probably watch everything this guy does. I mean, Scott Z. Burns made a really good debut with The Report. No one saw it, but it was really, really well done. Yeah. Shaun of the Dead. uh, Shaun of the Dead's not his first movie. Well, it's not technically, but you can't see A Fistful of Fingers. That's true. I guess if you cannot see A Fistful of Fingers, does it really exist? Yeah. And I know Edgar is very, like, stringent upon, like, you know, uh, saying that Shaun of the Dead is not his directorial debut. But it's hard to, like... I can't see Fistful of Fingers, although I know it's getting a release this year, I think, at some point. So we'll all get to see it. But it was like a movie that he made with his friends, I think. Right. And even he would be like, you know, it's kind of good that no one saw it, (laughs) that it (laughs) kind of flew under the radar. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Um, Yeah. And I would say Brick from Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty huge one. Um, Yeah. I mean... I'm more curious by, you know, to be, to be perfectly honest, I'm more interested in like the, the, the first features that didn't go well and didn't tell us like how talented someone would be. Or basically I'm thinking of like alien three, like if you were like David Fincher, eh? Yeah. <laughs> There's this David Fincher cat up to, Oh no. And it's like, really, if you want to be fair, like seven is really more of his debut because he got to do what he wanted on that film. Yeah, but, you should definitely watch the behind-the-scenes documentary on the Alien, Alien 3 Blu-ray, where Fincher just, just... Wants to die. <laughs> wants to die, but also, like, refuses to leave, like, refuses to quit, um, even though they want him to. Uh, it's very entertaining. Yeah. yeah, that's usually how it goes. I mean, even something like Fruitvale Station, I don't think it's the best movie ever. Um, and it obviously didn't show us all the colors of Ryan Coogler's filmmaking, because usually, you know, directorial debuts are a first step. You're not fully formed there yet. It's rare that, you know, the directorial debut, it's rare that you can track the directorial debut all the way to like their fifth or sixth feature and it's just as good, Um, which I would say is the case with someone like Edgar Wright uh, or someone like Tarantino, where they just kind of come out of the gate fully formed. Probably even Greta Gerwig, I would say. Um, Now that we've seen Little Women, I think that she is a a really fantastic filmmaker Um, and, and Lady Bird was not a fluke, so... No, yeah, like, I mean, that's the thing, when you give them, like, more money, you know, but, like, you know, I would say, like, look, like, if you look at, like, Spike Lee, like, you know, we kind of think of, like, do the right thing as his, as his breakout, but before that, he still had, like, school days, and she's got to have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 
you know, I think it's, I think in terms of like a debut feature, like it's always interesting to see like someone like come out the gate and like really nail it and sort of have sort of full command. Um, but more often than not, you sort of see an inkling of, of, and from, and promise of what they're going to do rather than sort of like, oh, wow, they're already hitting it out of the park. Yeah. I think Hitchcock is also a great example because he had already made like dozens of films. Yeah. And, and, and some of them are just lost now. They're just, they just don't exist anymore. They're silent films that weren't preserved and now they're gone. And especially in that era, it was a lot of like, you were just cranking stuff out. And so you kind of got better aircraft, um, that way so yeah so yeah um i i I hope that answers your question yes uh this next question comes from sad 49ers fan uh who asks what are some of your favorite robert altman movies Ooh, so i'm gonna i'm gonna get some hate right now i'm gonna get some hate uh i don't really like robert altman that much what uh most of his films there's one exception and i'll get to it most of his films are just so the best word I can say is snotty. <laughs> like there's this sort of resentment, of, like they carry this resentment with them of just sort of being like, I hate that I have to be in the Hollywood system that I am clearly better than. And it's not that he's necessarily wrong, but like I watch films like the player and the long goodbye. And I'm just like, Oh, get out. Like, I get it. You hate this. <laughs> and I know <laughs> that there's like, I know that there's other good, like it's not, that's not, encompassing everything like there's of course like McCabe and Mrs. Miller and like I think Altman's like I don't think he's a bad director but there's a tone in his films that is just sort of like that he needs to let you know he's an iconoclast and it's just so gratingly self-aware beneath and and again again I'm sure some people are like Goldberg's on crack Altman (laughs) is a genius and like obviously like if you love Altman more power like I think they're you know if you love Altman I get it I will say the Robert Altman film that I do straight up love is Gosford Park, um, yes. which I think is brilliant. But I think that's because I think I, I give a lot of credit to that. I think Altman's doing great work. Don't get me wrong, especially because I think one of Altman's skills is, is managing a large ensemble. Um, but I also think a large amount of credit goes to Julian Fellow's script on that film. Yeah. Uh, I'm also going to get a lot of hate. I have not seen very many Robert Altman films. Um, and I, I do remember as a kid really wanting to dig into his filmography, but my local blockbuster didn't have him. Like, I really wanted to see Nashville, and I could never find Nashville at Blockbuster. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, on demand didn't really exist <laughs> at that time. Uh, and, you know, I've got a lot of catching up to do. I've seen Gosford Park, and I've seen <laughs> – I'm pretty sure I've seen Dr. T and the Women, but I don't really remember it. And I've seen some of the player um, – I think I've seen some of a Prairie Home Companion, like on cable or something. Prairie Home Companion is interesting simply because it's like, you know, it's it's based off just the the um, the radio show, but really the film is Altman like wrestling with death. <laughs> yeah, that's well, what Paul Thomas Anderson Shadow directed that because he the film couldn't get insured because Altman was in such poor health. Mm. So Paul Thomas Anderson had to be on set every single day in case anything were to happen or in case Altman in case Altman suddenly dies. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that was a pretty big deal. Um, and Altman was, uh, you know, a mentor to Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, and obviously, you know, MASH is, you know, important. And I have no no disrespect against MASH. I'm just like, Altman is not, you know, he's one of those filmmakers where I, I am curious to see more. But at the same time, some of the stuff that I've seen from him has not hooked me in the way that it's hooked other people. Sure. That's fair. Um, yeah, I would like to see more. Uh, I want to see like McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a big blind spot in mine. I would really like to see that. It's a very interesting take on the Western. I will say that. Um, it's not like, man, I wish all Westerns were like this. Um, but it's a definitely a, a cool spin on it. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from James Saud, uh, at video gym nine, uh, who says, I love books like Hitchcock Truffaut, if chins could kill, Rebel Without a Crew, and I'm currently reading and I'm fascinated by Disney War. What are some of your favorite books about films, filmmakers, and the film industry? This is a very good question. Uh, and I will start off by saying The Men Who Would Be King uh, was really eye-opening for me. It's about the creation of DreamWorks. Um, by, I think Nicole Laporte is the author of that one. Uh, um, 
basically the creation of Steven Spielberg's first studio with Steven Spielberg, David Geffen, and Jeffrey Katzenberg coming together to try and create a movie studio, kind of in the in the vein of kind of the old mode that was kind of uh, filmmaker driven. But also gives some really fascinating insight into what Spielberg is actually like as a person and as a as a businessman, um, and the frustration that the people at DreamWorks felt when you know he created the studio and then just continued making movies for anyone any other studio other than Dream DreamWorks. Um, and then obviously you know you get into like DreamWorks Animation and the eventual fall of DreamWorks um, uh, and the sale of DreamWorks as well. Um, that book is. I like that book a lot. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, for me, I, I really love um, William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade and Which Lie Did I Tell? I think Which Lie Did I Tell is the better of the two books because basically Adventures in the Screen Trade, it, both are memoirs about his experience writing uh, certain scripts. And Adventures in the Screen Trade is like William Goldman on top of the world, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and all the president's men and like it's all going well. And, you know, and even if it doesn't all work out like a bridge too far, uh, you still get an interesting story from it. Like, boy, it's great being William Goldman. Uh, which slide did I tell is a humbled William Goldman <laughs> with, a, with more of a chip on his shoulder. And I think that's more of an interesting read. Like you get really kind of fun behind the scenes stories of like, you know, like he wrote the script for Maverick and like, uh, you know, uh, what else? Like some, some other, uh, like magic, the magic, the film with like Anthony Hopkins and like a ventriloquist dummy, like that he writes about <laughs> that film. And so like, it's fun to sort of like follow him in these various behind the scenes stories. Oh, like one of the, uh, there's a great story in which light did I tell about the ghost in the darkness where he's talking about like, um, how, uh, Michael Douglas was a great producer. He's a great producer. But then the second he signed on to be in the film, his ego got in the way. And he's like, I need to change the, the script to make me look better as an actor and as a character. Like as long as he wasn't in the film, it's like, yeah, let's you know, make it complicated. But the second his, he went, he was on board as an actor, it changed the complexion of the film completely. So uh, I, I, I love which lie did I tell, um, but also adventures in the screen trade is also good. Um, I also recommend uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is, I think, sort of the the definitive history of the second golden age of Hollywood. Um, oh, and I, Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution is fantastic. Uh, that book chronicles the, the production of the five nominees for the 1967 Oscars. So it is uh, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner?, uh, the Graduate, um, Bonnie and Clyde, and Doctor Doolittle, and it's interesting because four of those films are about the sort of the beginning of the new era of Hollywood, and the fifth film is Doctor Doolittle, which is sort of this <laughs> weird holdover from the bloated studio system. And it's really fascinating to watch sort of the the chronicle of these different movies and how they were made and how they were received. It's a great book. I will also say uh, Disney War is a must read to anyone who hasn't mm-hmm. read it. Yeah. Uh, some really great insight. It, it covers uh, when Mike Eisner and um, Bob Iger came in and uh, I mean really mainly Mike uh, Michael Eisner and took over Disney and what the late 80s and 90s were like at Disney as a company. And then the jockeying to replace Eisner and kind of like what it looked like when they were trying to figure out um, you know, which executive would take over some really like necessary insight to how a company like that runs. I think people kind of lose track and think it's all about the movies or, you know, all about the theme parks, but it's really all about the bottom line and what can you do for me um, in the eyes of the shareholders, but also just some really great behind the scenes stories and like really crazy jockeying behind the scenes and behind Michael Eisner's back, uh, you know, the huge fallout between, Eisner and Katzenberg, who was running uh, Disney Animation Studios until uh, he was fired and left and made DreamWorks Animation. You will never view Shrek the same way again. No, and there's a great story of how, uh, you know, uh, Katzenberg left and immediately made Ants because he knew that A Bug's Life was happening at Pixar. Um, And then also how Bob Iger saved... Uh, or kept Pixar from leaving Disney because they were going to leave Disney because uh, Michael Eisner was being a jackass. Um, so that that's a really a must read. Um, and then for like something I've been reading lately, um, just for like insight into the filmmaking process that I've been really enjoying. Uh, it's a book uh, by a guy named Ian Nathan. It's called Anything You Can Imagine, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth. 
Um, and it's, it's a really massive book, but it's just this really granular, uh, history of the making of the Lord of the Rings films. And it goes all the way up through the Hobbit trilogy as well. But a lot about, uh, you know, the complicated rights issues, the various earlier versions that were attempted. And then also what, uh, Peter Jackson's headspace was like when he was, you know, given the chance to make, uh, Lord of the Rings and the various different versions he pitched. There was a two film adaptation. There was a one film adaptation, but also insight into like a director, like he wasn't a, uh, Lord of the Rings super fan. He had read it once uh, when he was younger and he liked it and it kind of came on his radar as a possible project when he was trying to get uh, King Kong made um, and he was also offered uh, or he was also meeting on uh, a new James Bond film. I can't remember which one. I, I don't think it was Goldeneye but it might have been Goldeneye but the process um, of making Lord of the Rings was very difficult and then also just very candid stuff uh, the author was on set, so a lot of candid stuff about, um, you know, replacing Stuart Townsend with Viggo Mortensen during shooting, and then just practically how they made those movies, which was insane. So, yeah, those very, movies should not exist. Um, yeah, I highly recommend. I I don't know about you. Have you seen all the special features from the Lord of the Rings? I uh, I don't think so. I was very unpopular so in college, many. so I have. <laughs> Instead of like going out and partying, I was watching the bonus features on the extended editions. <laughs> I was going to say, there's like hundreds of hours. Worth, yeah, right? I've seen them. I've seen every yeah. commentary track, and I've seen every special feature on those discs. It's, <laughs> it's really something. It's yeah. really sad for me, personally. But I think <laughs> if you want to learn about filmmaking in the early uh, 2000s, uh, and how transformative Lord of the Rings was. You can't go wrong with those box sets. Yeah, the extended editions are like, I can only watch them when I'm sick, because otherwise, like, a four-and-a-half-hour movie is too big of a time investment to just, like... You gotta really want to just sit there on the couch for yes. a long Yeah. So. The last time I've watched the extended editions is when I was building the Lego Tower of Orthanc. <laughs> <laughs> You're not helping your case here. I just want to let everyone know, listening, how cool I am. I'm just such a cool guy. I'm very cool. All right. Move on to the next question. All right. This is a a rather hostile question. Sure. Directed at Matt um, by Saurav uh, at The Broke Bloke. Um, Why is it necessary to deride a director personally while reviewing a film? How does that factor in as a reviewer? And this is for you, Matt. Mm. You have been acting as a bully while writing your reviews. Is this because you lack empathy? Mm. Were you not loved as a child enough? No one gave you hugs that you have to deride someone personally while critiquing their movies? How can you be the judge of someone's capacity as a director? So, first of all, I really like... How can you attack this person personally? Were you not hugged enough as a child? <laughs> I don't like your personal attacks. Here is a personal attack. Yes. Secondly, I actually have, I disagree with the premise of the question because I don't direct attack directors personally. Like I don't give a shit about anyone's personal life. I'm not like, ah, John Favreau, his mom didn't love him. That's why his films are mediocre. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't, you know, I don't subscribe to, I mean, there, I think there are definitely times when you're like, huh, this aspect of autobiography seems to be leaking into your work. Um, or sometimes the director will just claim it as such. They will claim, like, this personally came from my life. I was dealing with this, and, you know, the result was this. But ultimately, what I'm trying to do is critique the film. And if we are, and if you subscribe to auteur theory, which, excuse me, admittedly is flawed. Uh, film is a collaborative act, but auteur theory, ultimately, the, the we, we claim that the ultimate responsibility lies with the director, which is somewhat true. Um, again, it really depends, certainly not in television, but in filmmaking, there's a case to be made that the director has authorship over a film, but then again, there's a lot of competing interests, like... I don't think, you know, Alan Taylor is the name on Thor The Dark World. I don't necessarily think Alan Taylor is responsible for why that film turned out the way that it did. I think he was trying to compete with, like, you know, you have the Marvel Story Group and, like, what does Kevin Feige want? And then, like, later he wasn't really in the... And then Alan Taylor wasn't really in the editing room. Uh, You know, like, and so, but at the end of the day, it's his name on the film. 
Yeah, we should also like pause to make a note about like screen credits are kind of ridiculous. Uh, I saw Brian Duffield, the screenwriter, was saying the other day he was the first of 13 writers on the movie Underwater with Kristen Stewart. But if you look at that film's credits, there are only two credited screenwriters. So you don't really know what happened. And Brian Duffield wrote that movie on spec and then like it went through 13 other writers before it was finished. And yet his name is still on the finished movie. Right, because the way arbitration works is that the first writer on always gets some part of the credit, whether it's a story by credit or something. That's why, like, Jeremy Slater is credited on the latest version, latest Fantastic Four movie, even though his script doesn't bears pretty much no resemblance, like, very little resemblance to the finished film. Like, he is... But like, and, like, you know, that script just went through everyone. <laughs> everyone took a crack at that script and it still didn't help. Um, uh, it wasn't that his script was bad. It's just, like, the Fox, you know, as a studio, just didn't really know what they wanted. But, again, to return to this hostile question, um, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's funny that I'm the bully in this equation where I'm the, the, the film critic working at home and the person in charge. And, again, I assume that this person is advocating on the behalf of Hollywood directors and not some scrappy indie filmmaker, but you know, I could be wrong, I guess. Um, but it's just like, if you are entrusted with millions of dollars to make a film and usually not just millions, tens of millions of dollars. And if not tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you're basically marshalling an army and I get that filmmaking is hard. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a miracle that any movie gets made and it's a super miracle when any movie turns out to be good. Um, but that being said, if you're just out here being like, everything is great, there are no bad movies, everyone's a winner, everyone gets a trophy. And it's like, I think that's great for children. I I think children need that self-esteem. But I think at the adult level, if you are saying I can do this job, what you're also saying is someone else can't. And so you kind of do have to prove yourself on some level and say, I have a story worth telling. This has artistic merit. I am, you know, what I'm doing is worth the, in, th- this investment of multi millions. And it's ultimately worth the investment of time of view of, as a viewer. And I get that filmmaking is hard. I don't want to denigrate the art of filmmaking. I think even the worst movie people worked really hard on it. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be like, Oh, they phone phoned it in. But that being said, if you think your film is worthy of mass distribution and exhibition, you can't just be like, but don't say anything mean about it or else you're a bully. I think that's a, that's a wrong read on the power dynamic at play. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, I don't think I'm particularly a bully in this regard. If you look at the power dynamic, um, and I don't think I've ever leveled a personal attack at a director beyond the bounds of, you know, unless they've done something really heinous. Like I think I have been maybe pretty harsh with Mel Gibson, but you know, (laughs) Mel Gibson was pretty harsh with his ex-wife. Um, you know, if you want to go to the mat for Mel Gibson, that's, that's your business. But at the end of the day, um, I've, I've tried to keep it focused on the filmmaking and not on the person. You even wrote an entire editorial that was basically like J.J. Abrams, by all accounts, is a very nice man. His movie also sucks. <laughs> Two things can be true. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like I, I, I'm sure, like J, like J, people wouldn't keep working with J.J. Abrams. Like he, like that's the thing. That's another thing. Like in Hollywood, if you're an asshole, like you can kind of it, it, like if you are an asshole then you need to be a very powerful person. Like you need to be like Harvey Weinstein level powerful and re- like for people to even tolerate your bullshit. And the second that power goes away, they will fucking gut you as you should because you're an asshole. Um, but if you're a nice guy, you can go along to get along forever. <laughs> like if you're like, if you're a nice guy and let's be honest, if you're a white guy, and if you're, and if you just bring people, um, you know, competent mediocrity, um, but you're like easy to get along with and like, you know, people like you, you'll have a career forever. Ron Howard will never want for making a movie. He will never have a hard time making a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have to be truthful in criticism. Otherwise your criticism doesn't really mean anything. Like if you are pulling punches, not that you have to like punch, but if you're trying to soften every blow, like you said, like it's a it's a huge playing field, and people are playing with budgets of three hundred million dollars and two hundred thousand um, dollars. 
but if your movie is going out wide theatrically, I think it's it's fair game to be criticized. Like you you are discussing, um, you know, what works well, what doesn't, and ultimately the director's name is on the movie, and every director understands that, and that's why directors fight um, for their vision. But sometimes with big studios, it's not entirely their vision but again at the end of the day their name is on the movie and so you have to operate from the assumption that they are the ones making the shot yeah and like you know i again i get it it's it, it's not it's not a completely uh as we said arbitration is a bitch um you know credit is is strange auteur theory is strange um but i think at the end of the day you know I don't, I don't carry an agenda into these movies. I don't go in being like, I'm going to hate it, you know, because that's stupid. Why would I go in? Why would I be like, I'm going to waste an, if, two hours of my life just being angry automatically. Like, I want to like a movie. I don't want to waste my time. So yeah. I give every film like as much of the benefit of the doubt as I can. Sometimes it's harder than others when you're like, hey, this filmmaker has really only made bad movies. <laughs> Here's their latest one. And you're like, ooh, but you know, you, you try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you do your best. Exactly. And sometimes people will surprise you. I mean, the thing is, is like, you know, everyone's raising, raving about Chernobyl, you know, and Craig Mazin. Uh, Craig Mazin's big thing before that was writing the Hangover sequels. Yeah. Which are bad so movies. Never yes. So you never know. And Chernobyl is genuinely great and is extremely well written. So, yeah. All right. Uh, next question. <laughs> <laughs> next question. Uh, from Matthew Long, uh, can Nicolas Cage have the type of career renaissance that Shia LaBeouf has had recently? Hmm. I mean, I don't know what Nicolas Cage's debt situation is like to be. Yeah, I I would say there are two things here. One, I wouldn't necessarily Shia LaBeouf has had a career renaissance. Uh, you know, I think Honey Boy was a very big moment for him and I think, uh, his public image is doing better, but I, I don't like, I'm not necessarily seeing him taking on you know, the kinds of roles that Robert Pattinson is doing right now. Not to say he's doing bad work, but I, I, I would say like a more apt comparison is can, can Nicholas Cage have a reconnaissance? Yeah. 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 That's fair. And the problem with that is that Nicholas Cage makes like seven movies a year. So when he makes seven movies a year, cause I don't know again. So the people are like, man, why? Like Nicholas Cage is an Oscar winner, you know, like, you know, and he was like a huge star, like national treasure movies and like Con Air and, you know, the rock and like, you know, I don't understand why is Nicholas Cage make all this direct to video crap? Why does he do all these bad movies? Well, Nicholas Cage got horribly into debt. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage spent too much money and now Nicholas Cage has to make a lot of movies because he owes money. Um, I don't know if he's paid it off. At some point you'd have to pay it off, right? <laughs> like, is that fair assumption? Yeah. I don't know. And, and the thing is, is I, it's not that Nicholas Cage only does schlocky films. Like Nicholas Cage will come along and like do something that probably doesn't pay really well like and he's i mean i don't know if any of these movies pay really well but he'll do something more indie like he'll make a film like uh like joe with david gordon green or um even something like color out of space like color out of space like it wasn't my cup of tea but like it's not schlock it's hp lovecraft like it's you know it's a real film it has a very clear point of view it has a clear authorial intent like that a color out of space is different than something like taking justice or you know some other you know direct video crap that he does yeah yeah uh, you know i i keep holding out hope that he'll do I, I would just love to even see him do something like a national treasure sequel again <laughs> like i don't know if he's not getting offered these big i think he might not be getting them offered anymore because i think his brand might be in the toilet because yeah. like when you like when you when you change to being like synonymous with like nicolas cage and some you know nothing picture that was like made on a weekend and released the following weekend, you know, where he's like, I gotta get, I gotta save my wife or something like that. You know, I mean, I, I saw, and it was cause it was theatrically released the, the remake of left behind. Um, <laughs> and that's just him in a cockpit. That's just him. Like there's one scene in him of him in an airport and then there's another, and then the rest of the movie is him in the cockpit. Cause he's the pilot and he's the lead of that film. But you know, it's if if you're doing those kind of films, at some point a studio is like, okay, what do we need Nicolas Cage for? You know, what is what does Nicolas Cage get us? And I think honestly, 
if Nicolas Cage is ever going to kind of get back to that level of like, oh, he can also be a lead in like a blockbuster or something like that, he's going to have to stop doing the schlocky films and kind of grind it out with some, you know, more indie stuff, which he can do. Like the thing that we forget about Nicolas Cage is he's actually a genuinely a good actor. <laughs> like he can act. It's just, he's also made a lot of choices that have not really required him to do much acting or yeah. the acting that is required has been comically over the top. And so you don't have to take him seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I don't know. We'll see. I, I think as long as he's continuing to do these kind of schlocky things, I, I don't really foresee it happening. That being, because, said, that being said, I will just as a ca- small caveat, Nicholas Cage is also a beneficial, a benefit to a smaller film because he is sort of a name. Yeah. And so like when Nicholas Cage signs on to something like Mandy, he helps Mandy get the budget that it would not may have otherwise had without yeah. his starring in the film. And he comes on to Mandy and he gives a real performance. Like it's not like he's not phoning it in. So I think there is some upside for Nicholas Cage doing these smaller, weirder films. Yeah. I would agree with that. That's fair. Uh, next question comes from Kevin Small uh, at Baby Kratos. Uh, which best picture winner since the preferential bo- voting do you think would have lost if the Academy had stuck with their pre-2010 voting method? Um, which is an interesting thought experiment. Um, before 2010, the voting, the way that best picture was voted on was just whoever gets the most votes wins, um, not whoever gets a majority wins. So that would sometimes re- result in like, you know, um, let's say Slumdog Millionaire got the most votes, but it only got 42% of the votes because everything was spread so thinly. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it was a, a huge number of people chose Slumdog Millionaire. It was just that, you know, mathematically it got the most votes. Right. Um, preferential ballot works a different way. Everyone in the Academy ranks uh, the nominees from one to 10 and they start going through those ballots and uh, sorting them into piles based on first place votes. And so, for example, you know, if on the first round you separate this last year, everything as uh, per first place votes, and it turns out that Joker got the least number of first place votes, they then take every ballot that had Joker at number one and look at what was put at number two. So let's say this first ballot they pull out, Joker was number one, well, Joker is in last place, so we're dropping that out, uh, Ford versus Ferrari was at number two. So now that ballot goes in the Ford versus Ferrari pile. And you continue doing that until you get um, this quote-unquote magic number, which is, uh, you know, done through math, basically. So it's a much more complicated system, but it technically um, results in uh, taking into account passion um, and kind of well-liked movies. Um, but it can also help smaller films. So... I don't know. I would say probably I was going to say Moonlight, I think, would um, maybe have lost on that battle. Um, but maybe even Parasite. I mean, if, if you're just going by majority votes and not taking into account uh, passion and like number one votes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's sort of like, you know, when you when you don't have that ranked ballot, you're trying to feel like, well, what's the all around winner? You know? Yeah. And so I don't, the I, obvious winner. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I think like, I think it's harder. I think, I think I, I kind of wish the Academy would release vote totals at the end of the year yeah, just to see how, how close it was. Cause I definitely feel like in 2014 and 2015, it was very close. I feel like, I don't feel like Birdman was the overwhelming choice, um, over boyhood. Yeah. Um, just as I feel, and I love Spotlight, but I don't think Spotlight was an overwhelming choice over Mad Max or The Revenant. No, no. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It would be interesting to see. Because you look at before 2010, and the winners were films like Slumdog Millionaire, No Country for Old Men, which was a shocker, kind of. Um, the Departed, Crash, Million Dollar Baby, Return of the King, and that's kind of when we would have a movie just like dominate the ceremony, like Return yeah. of the King won every single award it was nominated for. And Chicago, I think, won also a ton of awards, including Best Picture. Um, but nowadays, you're, you're spread pretty thin. I think uh, Parasite won, what was it, three awards? Four. Four. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very different. But, you know, back then it was, 
it was kind of agreeable choices. I think a movie like Green Book would probably benefit, um, whereas smaller movies like Moonlight and Spotlight, I think, would uh, suffer. Yeah. It's a good question, though. Would be my guess. It is a good question. Um, our last question comes from Stephen Edwards. What trend do you hope to see in movies in 2020? Personally, I'm hoping for more Knives Out, Ford v. Ferrari, Us, and Little Women, stories that are told with great casts and a decent budget that turn a profit and encourage studios to continue in that vein in the future. Yeah, we, you know, we talked about this on our 2020 preview uh, episode because this year doesn't really have an event film. Like, it has big movies. Like, I mean, Wonder Woman 1984 will be big. Um, you know, I'm sure the new... Well, maybe not. Maybe I mean, I assume the new Fast and Furious movie will be big, but I think Fate of the Furious made less than Furious 7, so who knows? Um not much less, I don't think. I mean, Furious 7 was unique. Like, well, yeah, that was unique. That was the, yeah. the Paul Walker send-off, yeah. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, what's the event... Like, we, we talked about this. There is no Avengers Endgame this year. There is no Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. There's not even really a Lion King. Um, some sort of, you know, massive film that you can Excuse just... Excuse me, sir. Are you besmirching Artemis Fowl? I have to say no. <laughs> uh, Disney mega hit Artemis Fowl. That was delayed from last August. No, of course not. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I was talking the other day with a friend about like, you know, what's the big film this December. And it's like, I can see, you know, I can see Dune being a film that like is a lot like Blade Runner 2049 and that like all the film nerds really love it. Like, oh, this is fucking great. And no one sees it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, like, I see Dune being a gigantic, like, a critically beloved flop. <laughs> Even West Side Story is super old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. I don't see I don't see how that's going to turn out a bunch of, like, kids. It's, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll see what the trailers look like. And Steven Spielberg's name still means something, I would like to think. Um, although the BFG says otherwise. Uh, but I could just see people groaning at West Side Story of, like, ugh. Well, especially in a, in a year that, that six months earlier they get In the Heights, which is a exactly. more modern take with you know you know again puerto rican characters center stage in in that musical rather than sort of west side story which kind of feels old and dated yeah from filmmakers of color in the case of in the heights which is john m2 and uh lin-manuel miranda and then you've got spielberg and tony kushner's west side story yeah so i i don't know like i really don't know like this december like what's the big holiday film that everyone has to go see do you remember when Netflix was going to make like holiday films and they were like, here's bright. We're going to start putting blockbusters in December. Well, they, they're <laughs> still fucking doing that. I mean, six underground came out last December and it's a piece of shit. <laughs> was that a Christmas movie? God, I forgot that movie existed. Yeah. It came out like at the beginning of December. Yeah. Yikes. But they're like, yeah, stay home and watch garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically. Just trust us that it did well. Yeah. <laughs> People watch the first two minutes. That's just as good. Yeah, that's just the same. Yeah, I don't know. The Croods too. The last duo could be a thing. It could be a thing. Yeah, maybe. You put like Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Ben Affleck, and Jodie Comer up there from director Ridley Scott, and I think that's that. I think that'll get some people out. Well, maybe if they cut a good trailer and it has good word of mouth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I don't know. I this year to to answer the question. I think this year could definitely be a very good year for breakout films for films that are like, Oh, have you heard about this? Can you know, get get people talking Yeah. um, rather than a film that succeeds through sheer force of marketing might. Yeah. I'd like to see original stories continue. I'd like to specifically see original stories continue with studio budgets, which are the films that Steven Edwards mentioned, uh, knives out Ford v Ferrari, us and little women. Like those are not micro budget original stories. Um, you know, I think Little Women was a hundred million. Ford v Ferrari was a hundred million. Knives Out was relatively small, but you know, not tiny. Um, but I'd also like to see. I mean, horror is doing extremely well right now. I'd like to see another genre make a a, a comeback. Like, come comedy. on, westerns. Western. <laughs> come on, no. westerns. I don't think anyone's got a hankering for westerns. I have a hankering for westerns. <laughs> Me and you. Uh, I don't think they're coming back anytime soon. Oh. Hard to say, pal. Now I'm sad. Yeah, very sad. But yeah, I, uh, it'll be an interesting year. And, uh, you know, I just hope we don't 
I hope the box office isn't like super down to where you the media starts writing stories like doom and gloom, like original they story. They always or, write that fucking story. They always write that fucking story. I, I say the story. media like we are not part of the media. But well, like, we're, we're not. not part of the media, but Variety writes that story every fucking year. Yeah. They just copy it from the last year and they're just like, oh, the numbers are down. I'm like, yeah, it's not 1997 anymore. <laughs> yeah. There are more other, there are other options vying for people's entertainment. Like, it doesn't mean that the movies doesn't mean like, oh, if only they had made better movies. <laughs> that's not the that's not the source of the problem. Yeah. Um, I am. Ser- I will say in terms of like 2020 trends, the thing that I am most curious about and the thing I am most worried about is is Quibi. Yes. Um, so for those who don't know. Quibi is Jeffrey Katzenberg's new thing. Um, it's a highly cynical play that assumes that because dipshits are always on their phone, <laughs> uh, you should just download, like, the, like you'll get uh, your entertainment in 10-minute quick bites, hence Quibi. Uh, and so, oh, it's from Jeffrey Katzenberg and also uh, the lady who used to run eBay. <laughs> Meg, what's <laughs> her face? Um, and Meg Whitman, I think that's it. Anyway. Sure. Um, so, but it's basically like, what if storytelling, but only in 10 minute increments. And the way we're going to do it is we'll just throw a lot of money at famous and famous and talented people. And they'll just crank things out for us under the surface and it'll be a hit. And I just feel like on the one hand in a vacuum, I think like, Ooh, like you only have 10 minutes to tell a story, you know, you know, or, or a serialized story, but in 10 minute chunks, like it seems like an interesting thought experiment, but in practice, it just feels like, Oh, someone made YouTube that they want you to pay for, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know. Like to me, Quibi reinforces the notion that audiences don't have attention spans and don't want to invest their time in things. And I don't necessarily think the evidence bears that out. It feels like, it feels like someone took a stereotype of a young person and be like, they're always on their phone, so they can't pay attention to anything. So let's monetize that and then build a business around that rather than being like, actually, people are, you know, really investing in long form television and long form podcasts. And like, it's not the fact that people want things shorter. It's just that they're getting it elsewhere. So this notion that like I'm solving the problem with a 10 minute, what's it, you know, whatever. I don't know. I, I, I think Quibi, what it represents, um, to me, it says it's it's a way of looking down on the audience, and I, I kind of rooting against it. Yeah, yeah, same here. Because I don't I don't want to see what Hollywood quote unquote learns from the success of Quibi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood that learns from the success of Quibi is like, oh, movies are dead. You know, that's yeah. like, no one's going to watch a 90 minute feature. That's dead now. What we need to do is release nine, 10 minute shorts. <laughs> well, what you get is Disney cutting their production output by half and then creating 10 minute short films to put on Disney Plus. Right. Which would be terrible. They're already slashing the amount of films that are coming from 20th Century Fox and putting most of those on Hulu. So, yeah, not good. Not a good thing. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a rough time. If you're if you're like me and Adam and you're like, I like going to the movies and I like sitting down and I like being transported and seeing a story that's 90 to minutes to two hours or longer, you know, like that is in that, you know, something like Quibi endangers that. Yeah, so for sure. that's why I'm anti Quibi. Um, OK, well, um I think that's it. I think that's it. All right. Well, let's move on to recently watched then. What have you seen lately? Uh, so my fiance and I have been watching Hunters on Amazon. Um, and it's interesting. It's the Nazi hunter show with Al Pacino and Logan Lerman, uh, created by a guy named David Whale. And it's set in the 70s and about yeah, this group of you know older Jewish people who are hunting down Nazis who are now living in America. Um, and the premise is solid, and the pilot I thought was great. It's an hour-and-a-half pilot. It's directed by Alfonso gomez Rajon, who did uh, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl and The Current War. Um, and the pilot is really solid. It's, it's, it's really exciting and interesting. Um, and then the second episode just tonally kind of 
I was not down. I didn't even know if I wanted to continue. Got a little better in the third episode. I'm about halfway through now. And it's a show that someone described that I will repeat, repeat now. Is It's a show that doesn't know if it wants to be Inglorious Bastards or Chandler's List. And you can't really do both. Like, you can do flashbacks to concentration camps and you can uh, do, you know, Jewish wedding ceremonies that honor the tradition of uh, being Jewish. But then you can't like smash cut to like a 70s style montage of like Nazi hunters that's all colorful and poppy and Tarantino-esque. It just doesn't really jive for me. Like Tarantino wasn't trying to like honor the Holocaust with Inglorious Bastards. Um, you know, he was making a piece of entertainment that. Well, and I think Tarantino, the way that he does the Holocaust and Inglorious Bastards is he's like, I need eight Jewish soldiers. Like he's, yeah. he's conscious of it. But he doesn't want to be like, and now we're going to go into the concentration camps. And for some people, like, that's unacceptable. You can't have one without the other. But I, I disagree. But I think, you know, the way he handles it is a way to go. It's all about tone and, and the tone of hunters when it does want to get into the concentration camps, when it does want to get into um, kind of the loss that the Jewish people faced, it gets very solemn, which is fine. But the solemnity doesn't – I don't really buy it when it comes off this like colorful, cartoony – um, these like fourth wall breaking montages and, uh, you know, over the top, like comedy, like Josh Radner from how I met your mother is in it for some reason. I think he's pretty badly miscast. Um, and his character is mostly like calm what, and comedic. What if Josh Radner just isn't a very good actor and he can't <laughs> be cast well possible. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's enough in it that, you know, uh, I'm compelled to finish out this first season. And I think it does do some stuff really well. But that that tonal balance is, I think it, it's a really great example of how you have got to nail tone and you've got to know exactly what it is, what kind of show you are making. Um, and there are some things that just don't mix well. And it makes me appreciate even more the filmmakers who are able to mix tones like that together. Like Edgar Wright doing something like The World's End that's like very funny and very quick-witted, but also very serious and, and very dramatic. Yeah, it's a, you know, balancing acts are tough. Um, yep. Yeah, my whole thing with like Hunters, I was kind of on the fence about it. And then it's sort of like, you know, the... <sighs> That when I when I heard it was kind of had sort of like a seventies exploitation vibe, I was like, I don't know if I really want that. <laughs> and it the the thing is, it is it doesn't until it does. Like you get like these five minute chunks of this exploitation vibe, and then it goes back to like a ten minutes dramatic flashback to a concentration camp, and it's just weird. So it, like it's not even like the tone of the entire thing is you know exploitationy. It just like wants to have these little flourishes here and there. So. I don't know. It's weird, man. Yeah. I I feel like, you know, I'm sort of curious. There, there's an interesting conversation to be had about like what Jordan Peele is attaching his name to because yeah. like he has a ton of clout, but so far the stuff he's attaching his name to as sort of as an executive producer has sort of been kind of middling. Like he attached, like he attached himself to the twilight zone reboot and that didn't really go anywhere. And now like hunters is kind of getting mixed notices and it kind of makes me wonder like, how is Candyman going to turn out? I hope it's good. I mean, he co-wrote Candyman. So that's true. That's a that's a difference there. Yeah, and Candyman also seemed, I don't want to say in his wheelhouse because obviously he can he can do quite a bit. But I think I don't know. I think Candyman should be very interesting, especially if you've seen the original Candyman and you'd be like, oh, this would really benefit from someone like Jordan Peele. Yeah. Because um, and I think I talked about this on an earlier podcast. Like Candyman is really good, but it also is very like '90s. Like, oh, the black man is going to come and take our white woman. You know, like it's that kind of regressive fear, even as it tries to like move a step forward and be like, here's like a supernatural, uh, you know, you know, slasher, and he's but he's black, and like that's pretty cool. So like it's it the the original Candyman is a is a it's a difficult balancing act that I don't think entirely works, but it's an interesting film. Yeah, uh, I recommend checking it out, uh, especially before the remake hits. I need to do that because I've never seen it. Um, for me, my recently watched is uh, The Hunt for Red October. Uh, I recently watched the 4K of that, and uh, you can read my review on the site, which isn't really so much a review of the film because I think the film is awesome, but sort of putting it in the context of the Jack Ryan character, who I think is kind of bad. <laughs> I don't think Jack Ryan's an interesting character, but I think Hunt for Red October is awesome. Uh, for those who don't know, the, the film came out in 1990. It's from director John McTiernan, who also did Predator and Die Hard. Uh, and the plot is that uh, there's a Soviet sub called the Red October that has a propulsion system that can make it run silent, which means it could theoretically 
come up to the coast of the United States and fire uh, nu- nukes at us, and no one would know. Uh, but the twist is that its captain, played by Sean Connery, uh, is defecting. And he's trying to keep his defection, you know, he can't tell anyone that he's defecting, but he's trying to sort of work out so that him and his senior officers can defect while not giving, tipping their hand to the crew. And, you know, it, it's a really interesting, like political thriller that also has like submarine warfare in there. And sort of the Jack Ryan character is he's the one that's kind of figured out what Sean Connery's plan is, but he's trying to convince everyone else. Cause everyone is like, Oh, we're on the brink of world war three. Um, trying to, you know, get, trying to sort of get Sean Connery to safety as it were. <laughs> uh, and, but like, again, like the U S is coming after him cause they think he's a threat and the Russians are coming after him cause he stole their submarine. Um, and it's really tense and really well done. And like, it has just so many clever little things. Like the film starts off and all the Russian characters are speaking Russian, but then it does a thing where it twists. And then all of a sudden now all the Russian characters are speaking English but it, 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 the way McTiernan tells you that is it's not like, oh, these characters could speak English all along, but rather we're just cutting out the subtitles because it's irritating and not useful to the story we're telling. So the characters are speaking English, are technically still speaking Russian, but we're hearing them in English because that's just its communication. And that's um, all telegraphed using visual language. Yes. As opposed to like some kind of title card or hackneyed exposition dialogue. Yeah. Like, Oh, let's all, let us all speak English so that they cannot catch us. Like, no, it's just, it's visually done and it expects the audience to keep up and it's great. Um, and everything about Hunt for October is awesome. Like I just, I rewatching it. I just was immediately sucked back into that world of just these high stakes thrills. And I think it's a really like, if you're looking to get into like submarine movies, it's a really good place to start. Whereas like, I love Das Boot, but I don't know like how quickly I'm like, you should sit down for this three hour film about Nazis in a submarine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's, it's great, but I don't know if you should start there. Uh, But Hunt for October is awesome. It holds up amazingly well. It does. I revisited all the Jack Ryan movies, I think last year. Um, and I enjoy those movies. Jack Ryan's not the most compelling of characters, but I kind of enjoy the idea that like each movie is just like wildly different from one another. Uh, the Chris Pine one's not very good. Um, but even some of all fears, I found some value in that uh, story there. So, Yeah. Um, and I haven't really watched the, uh, from what I gather of the Amazon series, it's more like, Oh, uh, let's just like, it kind of carries what shadow recruit was doing. It's like, let's just make them a little bit more militaristic, you know? Yeah. Whereas like in like the Harrison Ford, Alec Baldwin ones, like, no, no, he's an analyst. Like he just, he wears a coat and tie and like, he kind of inadvertently gets into these, you know, life and death stakes, but he's a desk jockey essentially. And then more recent iterations, like, no, no, he's in the field. It's a mix between the Ford and the Pine ones. The first season of Jack Ryan does a pretty good job of like, you know, he's very much on a desk and like that is his job and he's out of his element when he's in the field. Um, Second season, I haven't finished yet. It's a little too 24-esque to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't hate the show. It's a, I mean, if you like dad movies, kind of like, it's a compelling enough watch. Like it's problematic here and there as most of those kinds of shows are. Um, But, you know, it's entertaining and Krasinski's charismatic, so... All right. All right. Um, Okay. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.